That was pathetic. Good morning. <laughs> you guys tired this morning? I'm tired this morning too. But we get to study God's word together. So woohoo. Um, so this week we had, you had the opportunity, yes, I say opportunity, to do a character study on Gideon. So I hope that you got to read those passages. I know it was a little longer this week, so forgive me. Um, but it was a really great story. I loved the story of Gideon, and I loved the chance to do a character study on him because I really felt like he was such a relatable character. I think we can all relate to Gideon at one point or another. And so in the book of Judges, where our story today is found, Gideon and Samson are undoubtedly the best known figures, um, not only because we're given such great detail about them, but also because they're really the kind of characters that we can identify with flaws and all, and Gideon is no different. And so if you have ever had the feeling of being overwhelmed, Gideon is your man. According to John Stott, Gideon explodes the myth that God could only work through majorities. And so today, before we look at this story, let's start with prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for what you're already doing in our lives, Lord, and I thank you for this chance to study your word together. Father, I pray that today you would uh, speak to our hearts, whatever it is that we need to hear today. If we walked in here with insecurities or weaknesses, Lord, may you remind us that you work in the midst of those. Sometimes you do your best work in the midst of those. So, Lord, um, let us feel you with us today. Let us hear your voice and leave here changed. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so the book of Judges as a whole often seems like it's this cyclical movement. Israel sins, God disciplines. Israel repents, God delivers them over and over and over again. But I think not just a cyclical movement, it's also a downward spiral, an ever-deepening vortex, as one commentator put it. Each time a leader is raised up, and each time they are more flawed than the previous one. And of course, the story of Gideon is no different. If you got to read through the whole story, six through eight, the end was probably not as positive as you had hoped it would be. Although in Hebrews 11.32, Gideon is regarded as a man of great faith, he is still a fallible human being, as we will surely see. And so let's jump right into our passage today, looking at our first six verses, Judges 6, verses 1 through 6. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. 
neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites, they cried out to the Lord for help. So before we get too far into this story, I first want to start with pointing out that the real battle in our story is not with Midian at all. They are only a problem because God has raised them up as his instrument of discipline for Israel. You see, God could deal with Midian at any point, at any time. The problem instead is with Israel and with their attitude of self-confidence and with pride that would take all the credit and refuse to give God any of the glory. The problem is with their idolatry and with putting themselves in the place of God. So if you read this story and thought that this is just a story of God delivering them from Midian, you might have missed the main point. God is as much delivering them from themselves. And so here we see God disciplines his people. And we probably all know and have experienced that discipline is a part of his love. And often it's only by him allowing us to taste the consequences of our sin that we are taught to hate it. So the Israelites here are being disciplined and they are suffering from the oppression of the Midianites as they waste the land completely, leaving no sustenance for Israel. They come, they attack, and they destroy. They are described as locusts, not just because of their total destruction, but because there are so many of them, they can't even be counted. One commentator I read noted that we don't need much imagination here to understand what wave after wave of this kind of total destruction would have done to the Israelite morale. Once the invasion was over, the Israelites lived the rest of their year in poverty. Not only materially, but emotionally and psychologically, the people of God have been reduced to utter destitution. We're even told that they're hiding in caves like rabbits crawling into their holes for protection. This is a great humiliation for the people of God. But it took them seven years of this destitution to cry out to their God. Can you imagine the stubbornness to wait that long? However, I think we're all quick to point a finger of accusation before first looking at ourselves and our same struggles. We too often turn to other things instead of the one true God. And oh, can we be stubborn. In fact, we have so much more in terms of the full revelation of God in Christ. And we have the indwelling of the Spirit in every believer. Therefore, we should be really ashamed at our own stubborn rebellion. But finally, they cry out to God. And I'm sure what they were hoping for was for God to immediately take some action on their behalf. But first, God sends them a prophet who indicts them on their rebellious behavior. 
And so Judges chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. It says, When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hands of of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. So this prophet comes and reminds them of all that God has already done for them and their lack of gratitude towards him. They're turning to idolatry and at the same time have closed their ears and refuse to listen to the Lord. So, they think, so will you rescue us or not? They expect him to hopefully say, so I'm going to give you another chance. However, at this point, they do not learn what God is going to do on their behalf quite yet. God just reminds them of all he has already done and all that they have forgotten. So before God will act to rescue, he first acts to remind. He reminds them of who they are, of what he has done, and of what was required of them. And so they have not just fallen under the power of the Midianites, they have fallen under the power of these foreign gods. They're not just having a political problem, but a spiritual problem as well. They're not experiencing the promises of the covenant. God had promised them a place to live in safety, where they would be able to reap what they had, stu- they had sowed, but instead, they're experiencing the curses of their disobedience. They have become complacent with the covenant. They have forgotten that the covenant does not just come with privileges, but also with obligations. It requires obedience. And so here we reach the root of the problem here in Judges, And that is that the people's hearts have been captured by idols that have corrupted their worship of the living God. That is the root of the problem that God is going to address in our passage. That is why God is going to rescue them the way that he will. And that is why Gideon's first task is going to be to remove these idols. Because God is dealing with the root of the problem their hearts being captured by idols. And so now we finally reach the part where Gideon is called by God in verses 11 through 12. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This is such an interesting way to introduce Gideon into our story. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. One sermon I heard said that if you don't read that with a smile, you're missing the point. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. See, at first when I read this, I thought that Gideon probably was a mighty warrior and he just lacked faith in himself. 
However, as I looked closer, I realized this is more of a prophetic statement. It's ironic at the present, but prophetic in the future. It's about who Gideon will become. You see, Gideon at this moment is anything but a mighty warrior. Here he is skulking in the wine press, threshing his grain. Now, threshing grain would have usually been done up on a hilltop where the wind could carry away the chaff. But instead, he's down in a wine press doing this as he is hiding from the Midianites. So he is sharing in this national humiliation that I just talked about. And that's the first reason that I think this statement is prophetic, because I think Gideon himself is embodying the whole nation of Israel, defeated, negative, without hope, and without vision. But God sees the man he is going to make, and that is how he greets Gideon. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Isn't that such a wonderful, gracious thing that God does here? He greets Gideon as who he will become and not who he currently is. And doesn't God do this to us all the time? And this really made me think of the song by Lauren Daigle called You Say. I'm not playing it today. This isn't a sneak peek. But um, you've probably heard that song speaks of all the things that God says about us. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. So let's all listen to that still small voice as God greets us as who we will become and not as we see ourselves. And another reason I think this um, is a prophetic statement is because the call of Gideon largely mirrors and reminds us of the call of another leader in Israel's past, Moses, who also disqualified himself when God came calling. This whole story is once again, because over and over again we get this in the scripture, a story of God using the weak to shame the strong taking the most unlikely clay to mold the most choice vessels. So Gideon has all of his disqualifications at the ready. He is sure God has the wrong person. However, human weakness is no barrier to our God. Human weakness is no barrier to our God. In fact, often it's a spiritual necessity It's a necessity for spiritual usefulness because it leads us to obedience and dependence upon God because he makes warriors out of nervous nobodies. God was not looking for the most courageous man in Israel. If he was, he needed to look elsewhere. But he was looking for someone who, knowing his own weakness, would depend all the more upon God. And that is what he's looking for in us as well. So, whatever disqualifications you have lined up for why God can't use you in mighty ways, remember that our God is a God of reversals. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He is an enormously resourceful God who loves to use those of us who feel inadequate to show his glory. 
Now, this is just as much a message for me as it is for you. Uh, over the month of January, we had the homeless here on campus. And as an elder, I was given the opportunity to come and pray and greet them as they came in to get their meal. And at first, when they shared this opportunity with us, I felt that stirring that I should probably go do that. And then when it came to signing up for it, I remembered all of my disqualifications. I'm too young to do something like that. I'm too much of a girl to do something like that. I am not a prayer warrior, and I don't think I could relate with them very well. And I had all these reasons why God couldn't use me. And so I missed my opportunity. And then I got to hear people who came and prayed and the hope that they heard and people who were having a really hard time right now and how they just prayed with the right person and had God speak through them in a mighty way and how they came nervous and terrified to do this and yet they felt God work. And I thought, what story would I have for you today if I had followed God's stirring in me, if I had put aside my disqualifications and walked up with my shaking knees and prayed, even though it made me nervous and uncomfortable? And so I remind you today, whatever those stirrings are in you and whatever disqualifications you have lined up, God uses our weaknesses all the time. He loves to use those who feel inadequate to show his glory. And I love in our passage how God surrounds Gideon's fragile ego. The Lord is with you, he says. Am I not sending you, he says, and I will be with you, he says. Three times he gives him this triple assurance of his presence and his call. And then he even goes on to provide this sign so Gideon needs a sign, and as if you got to read, you see that is his pattern. He likes to have a lot of signs. He needs constant assurance, and God graciously offers them. And so Gideon brings his offering, which during this time of famine would have been a considerable sacrifice of faith, and God graciously accepts it. He doesn't need it, but he graciously accepts it. This rock becomes an altar as the fire of God consumes the offering and the angel disappears. And so Gideon is given a triple assurance. He's given a sign from God and now he's given a task. And this is found in Judges chapter 6 verses 25 through 27. It says, That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So it's no wonder this is Gideon's first task. Remember, the problem is not with Midian. The problem is with Israel and their hearts not being turned towards the Lord. The problem is with them turning to idols instead of the one true God. And so Gideon's first mission is to go into battle 
not with a military army, but a spiritual one, putting an end to their compromise. So here, God gives Gideon a test of his obedience. And what he does here is significant. He tears down the Asherah poles, and it's those poles that he uses to build this altar. He tears down the altar to Baal, which would have been the image of a bull, and then he sacrifices a bull on the altar. He is putting their worship back to its rightful place. And this would have been a very provocative thing to do, and as we will see later, this was dangerous. And so he does it at night. And at first, this seems to lack courage, but as one commentator I read said, obedience was required, heroism was optional. Gideon was obedient, even though he was clearly afraid. And may that be a lesson to us as well. It's okay if you're afraid to be obedient, stepping into something God has called you to do. In fact, I think that's most often the case. Because that is how we grow. That's how we step out of our comfort zone and learn to trust God even more. And we ourselves are in the idol-smashing business. May we learn from Gideon here. Let's figure out what idols we might have in our own lives. Maybe, probably good things that have just gotten to the wrong priority. And let's instead put God in his rightful place. Idolatry today is not that different from Gideon's day. We find what this world has to offer so hard to resist. But the achievement of the cross was to take those whose heart inclines towards other things and claim them for Christ, enthroning him over them. So now we come to the turning point in our story. In verse 34, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. So when God calls, he also enables. Here we see the divine enabling of Gideon. This verse literally reads, The Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. Isn't that an amazing picture? The Holy Spirit put on Gideon like a suit of clothes. Gideon is the clothing in which God is going to appear, the instrument that he is going to use. As one commentator pointed out, the stress here is entirely on the power of God, not on the faith of Gideon. He was capable of great deeds only because the Spirit of the Lord took hold of his life and gave him power. And so we pause here for a moment to think about this divine enabling. Gideon's life is not only an encouragement for the weak, but it's also a warning as well. As we continue to see in the story, that will become even more clear. But we pause here to remember that it is the spirit that enabled Gideon. Our theme this week was anything is possible. And that points to the God who can do anything. But if we ever become self-assured and think that we can do anything, it is then that we encounter a problem. It's not Gideon's strength, it's God's. 
Israel would have been much better off had they remembered that truth. And as we continue through this next section, it's going to become even more clear that Gideon is not the strong one in our passage. And so we come to the point where Gideon tests God with the fleece. And I don't want to read this whole section um, just because we don't have time to do that, but I hope you got to read it this week as Gideon sets up these two tests for God as he lays out his fleece. And the details of this event are fairly simple. However, the question we probably ask is whether or not we should do the same thing if we should follow the same example laying out our own fleece. But first, I would point out that Gideon himself was pretty ashamed that he needed these tests. And he realized that he was testing God and being very bold to do so. But I would also point out that he here is not asking for guidance. He's not saying, which way should I go? What should I do? He already knows that. He's asking instead for reassurance. And I think we can confuse those two things. It's easy for us to confuse them and lay out tests for God. If you will just do blank, then I will know I should do blank. Instead, Gideon isn't asking for guidance, but reassurance of God's presence as he stepped into what God was already calling him to do. But his tests were filled with doubt. And I don't think we should see him as an example to follow, but I do think that we should be astounded by the God who graciously confirmed his call and his promise by these two supernatural occurrences. Because God often condescends to our folly because he is gracious and patient with us. This story of Gideon testing God with the fleece then should not encourage us to set up similar tests but instead should just remind us of what a gracious God we serve, as he often reassures us when we need it as well. And so now we reach chapter 7. And let's look at chapter 7, verses 2 through 6, as God shrinks this army. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Sorry, speaking of drinking. (laughs) I made me thirsty. All right, so God shrinks the army. We don't need much imagination to think of what Gideon must be thinking at this point. If he needed a double fleece test when he had an army of 32,000 men, what state is he likely to be in when that's reduced to 300 and the enemy now outnumbers them 400 to 1? Now, it's often discussed, and I've heard 
talks as to why lapping was a better sign of a soldier. Um, But I think if we are asking that question, we're missing the point of the passage. Um, We're kind of getting off track if that's the question we're focusing on, because the the object here is not to reduce the army to a particular kind, but to a particular number. This group of 300 is not meant to be an elite, the best of the best. But instead, this is a story of how inadequate they are. And when the battle is won, everyone must know that it's God who delivered them. That is the goal. Now, this is my favorite part of this passage. Even after Gideon's had a sign triple assurance, he's tested God twice after all of this, he is still afraid. And can't you relate with Gideon here? God, you were faithful this time, you were faithful that time, and also this other time, but this time is different. This time, the odds are definitely not in my favor. This time, I can't fully trust you. This time, I have a good reason to be afraid. God has shown his faithfulness in the past, and yet we struggle with trusting him in the present. But the thing here that I think is amazing and wonderful of God is that Gideon, knowing that he has asked for all these signs already, doesn't ask for another one. He is afraid, but he doesn't even admit this to God. But God gives him a sign anyway. Our fears, even the ones that we don't want to admit to God himself, are completely transparent to him. And God often takes the initiative to calm our fears. And that's what he does with Gideon he takes the initiative and gives him yet another sign. And so how does he do this? Um, If you got to read, you hear where Gideon got to overhear this conversation in the enemy's camp. This was God lifting the veil and allowing Gideon to peek into his unseen purposes. He arranges for him to overhear this conversation And it's so entirely of God, there is no way for Gideon to doubt any longer. God had already been working in the Midianite camp, lowering their morale and causing them to be afraid of Gideon and of Yahweh. And so then we get this battle. Um, And it's honestly pretty comical. There is no military might required at this point at all. All they need is some trumpets, some empty jars, and some torches. Um, I liked how one commentary described this um, event. It says, The torches flickering on all sides told the Midianites that they were surrounded. The pandemonium of shattering jars deluded them into thinking the Israelites had already entered their camp and were creating havoc there. And the battle cry with the dreaded names of Yahweh and Gideon did the rest. The enemy was thrown into a panic. 
while Gideon and his 300 men merely held their positions, waving their torches, blowing their trumpets, the camp rushed about in confusion. This is truly God delivering them in a mighty way. So, as you probably read in chapter 8, the end of our story is not quite as positive as we might have hoped. If you read chapter 8 and thought, wait a minute, the hero of our story is not actually that great. Why would you have us read this story if it ends this way? Well, I just want to remind you that the hero of our story is by no means Gideon. God is the hero of our story today. And our theme, Anything is Possible, points to the God who can do all things. I think, in fact, having Gideon end the way that it did helps us to not put him on any sort of pedestal, but realize he is a fallible human being just like we are. But God is the hero of this story. And so here we hear of the flawed humanity of Gideon once again in chapter 8. We read about the beating of the elders of Succoth and the destruction of the Tower of Penuel, which may very well just be a judicial sentence carried out by Gideon as judge. However, this is also in response to their not having faith in him earlier, and this is his fellow Israelites that he is punishing here. And then we hear of him killing Zeba and Zalmunna, those are wonderful names, which only later we see had been responsible for the death of his own brothers. Perhaps this is personal revenge instead of obedience to God. But then they ask him to be king, and he refuses. And we think for a second it's starting to look up for Gideon as he points to the Lord as the true king. But later it appears that even though he has refused the title, he has lived as a king. He even names his son Abimelech, meaning my father is king. And then he makes this ephod. And this was a priestly vestment containing the Urim and Thummim, um, which were meant to seek God's guidance. And he wanted to get his own direct guidance from God. And he was, in effect, consecrating himself as an alternative high priest to the one God had already chosen. One commentator said, if we determine to go our own way and set ourselves up in conscious opposition to God's purposes, he may teach us to trust him through the sour experience of getting what we want at the expense of whom we need. So Gideon was unable to change the heart of the nation since his own heart had not fully changed. He couldn't secure the victory over his own heart as he led the people back into idolatry and further into that downward spiral that we talked about being the book of Judges. It's a bleak ending. It calls into question why God would have delivered them at all. However, the hero of our story is one that would go to great lengths to bring us to himself. He will do whatever he can over and over and over again 
to draw us into relationship with him. That is the God we serve, and that is the God for whom anything is possible. And so as we conclude today, let the story of Gideon be both an encouragement and a warning to us. First of all, an encouragement, because human weakness is no barrier to our God. So whatever disqualifications you may have as to why God can't use you, remember that our God is a God of reversals. He is a God who uses the weak to shame the strong, and he can use you just as he can use me. And remember how the Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. He put on Gideon like a suit. And may he do the same with us, as we're willing to be dependent upon him and obedient. And through our weaknesses, we depend more on God for strength. That is what our weakness should do. It should lead us into greater dependence on God. And God is so patient in our fear. He knows our fears. Even if we don't speak them to him, he knows them. And oftentimes he will go out of his way to calm even our unspoken fears. However, in order to be obedient, we often need to step out, even with our trembling knees, even in the dark of night, and see what he can do. Now Gideon should also be a warning to us. We are in the idol-smashing business. Whatever things or people we might have set at a higher priority than God, we need to set to their rightful place. That is the first step in fully being used by God, is making him our first and foremost priority. And let's never forget our weaknesses. Let's own them, admit them, share them with one another, because we are called to live a life of humility. Let's never start to think that we've accomplished anything on our own. Don't fall into the trap of self-assuredness or the danger of complacency. Everything is possible only when we have God on our side. It is only through his strength that we can do anything. And so the song I have to close you today is by Matthew West, and it's called Broken Things. So we have a God who uses the broken things of the world. It is the humble and the weak. It is the misfit heroes like Gideon that tell us there's hope for sinners like us. So let's listen to this song. <laughs>